Welcome to Practical Christian Living. God's ways are as high above our ways as the heavens are above the earth. If they weren't, we'd understand why we're suffering. If they were our ways, we wouldn't be suffering. So we would say, certainly, we could find ways to accomplish God's work without suffering. We could accomplish God's work through just pleasure instead of, instead of sorrow and suffering. But why was it that God did it? That the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. Here's something that's not very popular. Suffering is part of the Christian life. We don't like to hear that, right? And we don't always understand it. But we are to trust Jesus and not trust our own understanding, Proverbs tells us. For in our suffering and trials, God works a much greater purpose, Christian, for our good and for His glory. May today's message out of James chapter 5, verses 7 through 12, encourage and help us to endure whatever we're going through. Here's Robert Furrow, pastor of Calvary, Tucson. John suffered in life. Remember, John was exiled to the island of Patmos, where he wrote the book of Revelation. Why is it that we don't picture that as suffering? When we think of John on the island of Patmos, somehow we think he's on Hawaii or something, you know? And it must have been good for him. He is imprisoned. He is banished. They had a banishment policy in their day. He was banished to the island of Patmos. It had become a prison for him. And it was there that God used him to write the book of Revelation when he had been banished to that island there on Patmos. It was suffering. Which one suffered greater? Was it James in giving his life? Or was it John in being patient? Either way, they were to patiently endure what God had for them. So he says, we are to be like that farmer. We're waiting for that precious fruit. Now we add something to it. He says, you also be patient. Same word, same encouragement. Therefore, be patient. Now you also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. What he adds in verse eight is to establish your heart. Establishing your heart is getting the roots of your heart to grow down deep so that when storms come, you can't be moved. Some of us here might not have established hearts. Some of us here might not endure in the midst of temptation and in the midst of trials. Some of us here, because our roots don't go very deep down in the Lord, when things get tough, when life takes turns, we don't expect it. We say, I'm done. I'm out. God didn't love me enough to keep this out of my life, then I'm not going to follow him. And you don't have an established heart. Our goal now is to establish our heart because the coming of the Lord is at hand. Now we think about James writing that. The coming of the Lord is at hand. And we go, that was 2,000 years ago. And he said, the coming of the Lord is at hand. Here we are 2,000 years later and he hasn't come back. And now you're preaching the coming of the Lord is at hand. So we need to establish our hearts. We want to make sure when he comes back, that we're not caught doing something we shouldn't do. We want to make sure that we have an established heart. But if he didn't come 2,000 years ago, we'll make sure you think he's going to come today because he hasn't come for 2,000 years. That means he's got to be closer to coming now than he was then. But also remember that the church age began on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured out upon the church. And remember, the room that they were in was shaken and they all began to speak in tongues and people heard them in their own languages, magnifying God and glorifying God. And some people said, these guys are drunk. And Peter stood up and said, we're not drunk. It's only nine in the morning. He said, but this is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel, that in the last days, we talk about the last days, according to prophecy, 
God gave some markers for the last days. He said that seal up the things of this book until the time of the end when knowledge will increase and when men will move to and fro upon the earth. So from that, in Daniel chapter 12, we learn that when men go back and forth and when knowledge increases, that's the time when the unsealing of the book takes place and that's the time of the end. We know that the Bible says in Ezekiel 38 that in the last days, God will gather the nation of Israel back into the land again. So those are the last days. But also, Peter said, he will pour out his spirit upon all flesh in the last days. That is the whole church period. From the time that the church was born at the day of Pentecost and the spirit filled the people that were there until the time that Jesus comes back for his spirit filled church, they have been in anticipation of the return of the Lord. There has been the thought that Jesus could come at any moment. Why? Because he said, you don't know when I'm coming back, so be ready. Make sure your life is ready. So from the time that this was written until the time that we are preaching this now, and who knows, maybe another thousand years if the, if the Lord tarries. I don't think he will, but maybe he will. Then we are in anticipation of his return. That's what we are waiting for. And we want our hearts to be established so that we endure patiently, establishing our hearts because he could come at any moment. The last thing that we want is an unestablished heart when he returns. We don't want shallowness in our lives. We don't want to be living for ourselves or living for our flesh. We overcome the flesh by walking in the spirit, step by step in the spirit. The Bible says if you walk in the spirit, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And so we are patient waiting because the coming of the Lord is at hand. It says verse 9, do not grumble against one another. Now I take it while they're waiting, they're not being so patient. Not only are they not being so patient, but they're also groaning, murmuring, complaining about one another. Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. This is the third time in these three verses that he's told us Jesus is coming, that he spoke of the coming of Jesus. Jesus is coming, his coming is near, and now the judge is standing at the door. Don't mistreat people. Don't grumble against one another. Don't slander malicious malice against one another because the judge is standing at the door. And the last thing that we want is when that judge comes through to say, Robert, I need to talk to you. We got some things we need to talk about. We want the judge to receive us with great joy. We want to make sure that we're right. One of the things that they were doing was grumbling against one another. He says a lot. James has a lot to say about our words. In fact, more than any other book. James is one of the heaviest books in the Bible. First Peter, which we'll cover here pretty soon, is also a heavy book. It rivals James in the heaviness of the topics and the way that he deals with it. But James deals with our words because what we say condemns us, James said. When we talk about somebody and we do the same thing, when we judge somebody with our words and we do the exact same thing that they're doing, God says, you're judging yourself. What a strong picture. Not to grumble against one another, brethren, because lest you be condemned, behold, the judge is standing at the door. I want to make sure my heart is established, that I have things right between, I'm treating people properly. He says, my brethren, take the prophets. Now, he's still talking about, even though he's throwing in these concepts of our words, he's still talking about patiently enduring during difficulties. And so he says, his second example now, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. The prophets had a lot of hard times. Uh, when you look at the life of Elijah and Elisha, 
When you see how Jeremiah was pursued and imprisoned and beaten, when you see Ezekiel, his wife died, there were different things Ezekiel went through as an example of the suffering that Israel was going to go through. You see Hosea, who was told to marry a prostitute, knowing that she was going to go back into prostitution. It's one thing to marry a woman that has been a prostitute. It's another thing to marry her knowing that she's going to go back into prostitution and marrying her anyway. And God was giving an example of his faithfulness towards Israel, knowing that they were going to be unfaithful. These prophets suffered. They suffered in great ways. Some of them were killed. Isaiah was sawn in half. They were arrested. They were beaten. They had a lot. He says, so consider these guys who suffered. And then it says, indeed, verse 11, we count them blessed who endured. What, what does that mean? We count them blessed who endured. We look back on the prophets and we say, man, what a good group of guys. They were so blessed to be a prophet. We look back at Jeremiah and say, man, I wish I could have been Jeremiah. I wish I could have been Isaiah. I wish I could have been Ezekiel. These guys were blessed as a consensus. When we think of the prophets, we don't think, what a bunch of poor guys. Those guys really suffered. We don't think that, do we? We think those guys were blessed even though they endured suffering, even though they faced difficulties. Why? Why is there a consensus in the church that the prophets were blessed? We count them as blessed because we know that real blessing isn't about the days that we live, but it's about the days that we are living for. We know that one day we will be in the presence of God. And we know that all of those prophets are in his presence and that they are far better off than the ones that didn't suffer, the ones that lived for themselves and lived for their own means and their own ends, the ones that got what they got. And it looked like here in this earth, they were receiving blessings, but in eternity they don't. So we count them blessed who endured. So his encouragement is, if we're counting prophets who had such struggles and difficulties as being blessed, if we see them and have a consensus that they were blessed, then how much more us? My brethren, take the prophets, verse 10 again, who spoke in the name of the Lord as examples of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed who endured. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the intended end of the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. You've heard of the perseverance of Job, he said. Well, of course they had. Job was one of the most common told stories of the Bible, of the Old Testament. It's the oldest story that we have of a man that lost everything, of a man who patiently endured. The perseverance of Job. When I read that God wants us to persevere as Job did, I feel a little bit better. Because when I think of perseverance, I think of persevering in a perfect kind of a way. But when I read the book of Job, I see that Job had his struggles. Job had his problems. At one point, Job says, I wish that God were a man because I would sit him down and I would say, what are you doing? You ever felt like that? You ever felt like, I don't know what God's doing in my life. And I wish he were a man that I could sit him down and say, what are you doing? That's how Job felt. That's the perseverance of Job. Job got into a complaining fit. Okay, so Job's got all this. He loses his family. He loses his, his wealth. He's sick, boils, pottery, right? And then his three friends decide to come around. And they're worse than all he suffered so far. Because these guys show up and they say to him, nobody suffers like this, Job, unless they're full of sin. You must be full of sin. Tell us, what's your sin? God doesn't do this unless there's sin in your life. And Job ends up defending himself. I don't have any sin. I tell you the truth. I didn't do anything. And I don't know why God's doing this. 
but woe is me. And he goes into a complaining fit. Now, Job also says some of the greatest things that anybody ever said. Though he kills me, I will serve him. Remember, Job's wife says, why don't you just curse God and die? Job, things are so bad for you. Why don't you just get it done with? Just curse God and die. He said, I'll serve him no matter what. I'll live for him no matter what my life goes through. But why did God do it? What was the purpose of God? When, when you get to the end of the book of Job, you think you're going to find out. Finally, God comes on the scene. There's Job's friend speaking, Job speaking, Job's friend speaking, Job speaking. Then there's the young guy that comes in and speaks, and he makes more sense than any of them. Then Job, and then the friends, and then Job and the friends, and then the young guy. Finally, you come to the end. And when God comes on the scene, he says to Job, a series of questions. Were you there when I laid the foundations of the earth? Job, no. Were you there when I created this, and I created that, and I created this, and I did this, and I did that? Were you there? And he goes through, I think, 40 questions. And all the questions would be answered by Job, no. No, 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 no. In essence, God is saying, you think you know what I'm doing, but you were nowhere around. God's ways are as high above our ways as the heavens are above the earth. If they weren't, we'd understand why we're suffering. If they were our ways, we wouldn't be suffering. Because we would say, certainly, we could find ways to accomplish God's work without suffering. We could accomplish God's work through just pleasure instead of, instead of sorrow and suffering. But why was it that God did it? that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. God was compassionate and merciful to Job. That's why the Lord had done it, and he revealed it. Well, our eternity is certainly compassionate. And we are to live for eternity and not for the here and the now. Now, speaking of endurance still, he says, above all, my brethren, do not swear. Now, this is kind of a weird thing for, for him to throw in. In fact, it's still in the midst of the suffering because look at verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. If anyone cheerful, let him sing psalms. And we'll talk about that verse here in a moment. Well, that'll be our first verse in our next study as well. But he's still talking about suffering when all of a sudden he starts talking about not swearing. Well, the first thing that we need to understand about the, the swearing here is that the swearing is not profanity. When he says, don't swear, he's not saying, don't speak profanity. That's covered in the book of Ephesians when it says, let no corrupt communication come out of your mouth. We as Christians should not be crass. We shouldn't be cussers, even though it's become a popular thing for pastors to do, to talk dirty during their messages or to be crass during their messages or double entendres during their messages. We are to give purity to the Lord. We don't want any corrupt communication coming out of our mouth. But the swearing here is in oaths, in making oaths. I want you to turn to a couple of verses just so we can get kind of an understanding of what James is saying. Turn with me to uh, Matthew 5. Jesus here, and we're, we're not far from here in our Sermon on the Mount. We'll study this more and more in depth on Sunday morning. But in Matthew 5, verse uh, 34, Jesus, like James, says this. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or one hair black. But let your yes be yes and your no, no. For whatever is more than these is from the evil one. Now, what I want you to notice is that he didn't say, don't, he says don't swear at all, and then he gives examples. But what he doesn't say is don't swear by the Lord. 
Neither does James. Neither does Jesus in other places. Let me explain to you what I'm saying. In the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy, there are certain times that they were commanded to swear by God. I swear by the living God that I will do this. Abraham swore by the living God. Jacob swore by the living God. Isaac swore by the living God. God even swears by himself. We're told in Hebrews, there's no one greater than God. So God swore by himself that he would accomplish these things. So there was very solemn moments, very rare and very solemn moments when oaths were to be taken in the Old Testament. And I believe there are very rare and solemn moments when oaths are to be taken by us. We, we swear by the Lord. We want to make sure there are solemn moments and that we are going to keep them. Some people read these verses by James and Jesus and they say, well, what this means is we shouldn't take oaths when we get married. We, we shouldn't give those oaths. We should just say yes and no. Or when I go to the court of law, I can't lay my hand on the Bible and say, I swear because I'm not supposed to swear by anything. I think that there are, what he's talking about here is when people begin to make other oaths to cover their lies. Don't swear by heaven. Don't swear by the earth. Don't swear by your head because you can't make one hair white or gray. When we were kids, you know, I, you say, I swear to God or cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. <laughs> you're saying you're going to stick a needle in your eye. Which one of us didn't say that as a kid? And how many of us were lying when we said it and never stuck a needle in our eye? But we think, well, that's, you know, I'm trying to, I'm trying to show the truth here. And what James is writing about, I believe, is this the early church getting into this thing where there's a lot of oaths, a lot of swearing, a lot of I swear to try to make who they are believable. When Jesus said, let your yes be yes and your no be no, that you and I should just be able to say yes. The more somebody has to try to convince you that they're telling the truth, the more they're probably not telling the truth. When someone just says yes and no, then that's the person you can believe more. And the person says, really, 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 I mean it. Yes, really, 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 I mean it. You wonder why does he have to be so passionate about his yes or his no? Now, he says, my brethren, above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth. And this sounds very much like Jesus or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, lest you fall into judgment. God said, I will not count him guiltless who takes my name in vain. In other words, and listen to this, when you say, I take an oath by God that I'm going to do this thing, God takes that seriously, more seriously than we know. So we need to be careful that we don't flippantly or call on the name of God to try to persuade somebody when it's a lie. Remember, remember Jacob, when Jacob had gone out and killed a goat and pretended that he was his brother? And he said, how did, how'd you get the, the, the wildlife so quickly? He said, well, God was with me. He basically calls on the name of God to back up his lie, to try to make it sound like, well, certainly if God's with you, then you can't be lying. We want to make sure that we're not flippant or quick about saying, I swear to God. But when we make an oath to God, that we keep the oath because God takes it seriously. If every time we make an oath by the Lord, God takes it seriously, then we're in trouble. That's what James says when he says at the end of this verse, lest you fall into judgment. Look, God takes it seriously. No wonder he says above all things. As they're living their lives, as they're going along, as they're patiently enduring, 
Above all things, my brethren, don't swear. Don't take oaths. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. I don't think he's keeping us from very solemn moments like a marriage when we take vows, but that it is an everyday part of our lives, that we understand the importance of making sure we keep what we have promised. When I was younger, me and my friends would mess around with each other so much that we didn't know when we were being serious. And so we came up with the idea, truth is a Christian, we would say. Are you messing with me? Are you telling me the truth? And finally, truth is a Christian. Okay, truth is a Christian. The idea was that we couldn't lie once we said truth is a Christian. I don't know why I'm telling that. But anyway, <laughs> because it's taking an oath. <laughs> so then he wraps things up in verse 13. And as I said, this will be the first verse of our study next week as well. He says, are any among you suffering? Or, uh, let him pray. Are any among you cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Throughout church history, there are different times when there's more suffering than other churches in church history. In the lives of each church, there are different times in that church's life where there are going to be more suffering within that church. In our lives, there's going to be times of greater suffering and less suffering. In certain people's lives, there's more blessings and less sufferings. In other people's lives, there's more sufferings and less blessings. Why does God do that? Well, I don't know. But all I know is that whether we're James or we're John, whether we find our lives being blessed and we're cheerful and we're praising him, or whether we're suffering and praying, we endure to the end. We say, Lord, no matter what. It's not about my state. It's not about how good I feel. It's about living for you no matter what comes my way. I mean, as he's writing these, God knows this, this letter isn't just to the church that's around then. He knows it's to all of us throughout all of history. And he's writing to all of his church and all of the suffering that the church has gone through. And we admittedly are not living in a place or a time. I'm going to say a place where there's not a lot of suffering because Christians are suffering around the world today, for sure. But we're living in a place where there's not a lot of suffering for Christians. Yet we each have sufferings in our lives, don't we? There's hardships and difficulties in our lives. And so we patiently endure, waiting to the end. And if we're suffering, then pray. Call out to God. And if you're cheerful, then praise him. Worship him and be thankful for what God has given you. Stand with me, would you, and let's pray together. Father, we want to be those that endure with a steadfast heart, with an established heart. We don't want to be those who follow you for a while while things are good and then fall away when they're difficult. Lord, help us to be those who are established and to count the cost. We know that you want a very real, deep commitment from us. You don't want a shallow commitment. You want one that means something and that we're willing to, to fight in the fight and not be entangled in the things of this world. We're willing to suffer and we're willing to, to run the race as if we are to win. We pray that you would help us to walk in endurance because we confess to you that we're weak. We confess to you that it's hard for us to endure during strugglings and difficulties. The first thought that we have is to get away from the pain, to get away from the hurt, to end it by stopping it instead of being faithful and enduring, knowing that even as Paul completed the sufferings of Christ, so we're completing the sufferings of Christ. Thank you that we've been given this encouragement as well as in other places. Let us endure like farmers. We've planted the seed and we just wait. We wait upon you and we wait patiently with our eyes on the skies, waiting for the coming of the Lord. And we thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. 
Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living with Robert Furrow. We hope that our verse-by-verse studies truly help you to see that God is real. He wants a personal relationship with you, and His Word is life-changing. If you'd like to hear more of Robert Furrow's teachings, visit calvarytucson.com. For our local listeners, we invite you to join us at one of our two campuses. Our East Campus at Speedway and Camino Seco meets Saturdays at 6 p.m. and Sundays at 9.45 a.m. Our West Campus, south of Palo Verde and I-10, meets Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 11 a.m. Our midweek service times are Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. at our East Campus and 7.15 p.m. at our West Campus. If you prefer, you can watch our service at live.calvarytucson.com and also on our Facebook page and YouTube channel. Our online campus is available during East Campus service times. If Practical Christian Living has blessed you and you'd like to donate, please visit pclaz.org. That's pclaz.org where you can make a secure one-time donation or sign on to become a monthly partner on a reoccurring basis. Have you accepted Jesus into your life or do you have questions about salvation? We'd love to hear from you. Email us at saved at calvarytucson.com and don't forget to follow us on social media, Instagram at Calvary Tucson or Facebook at Calvary Chapel Tucson. We want to remind our local listeners that you can watch Practical Christian Living TV Sunday mornings at 8.30 a.m. on KGUN 9. Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living.